You've tuned in to Sci-Fi Fidelity, Episode 50, Genre Anthology Series. Welcome back to the show, everybody. My name is Mike, and I'm here with Dave. And we're talking about genre anthology series. This is actually a discussion topic that was inspired by things that are happening out there right now, including the fact that Twilight Zone is being rebooted by Jordan Peele, as everyone knows. But also, we stumbled across a show that just showed up on Netflix, and I was desperate to get screeners, but I had to wait for it just like everybody else, and that was Love, Death, and Robots. What a weird but awesome show that... that uh, explores all kinds of depraved human behavior and it's in the animated field. If you haven't, if you haven't checked out love, death and robots, check it out. It's, it's on Netflix as of March 15th. And um, so anthology series have not died, Dave, they're still going strong. They are still going strong. And, you know, both of us love lists and, and den of geek love lists, you know, lists get tons of traffic but if we're talking genre anthology shows, I don't know how you can ignore maybe the granddaddy of them all. Certainly not the first, but the first one, I think, to make a huge impact. And that's, of course, the original The Twilight Zone, developed by Rod Serling, who famously introduces each episode. And I'm not going to uh, bore you with that. You've heard it a hundred times at least. <laughs> And I mean, certainly a case can be made that the original Twilight Zone that aired from 1959 to 1964 laid the groundwork for serious science fiction, fantasy, supernatural and horror works that have become ubiquitous on contemporary television. In other words, what we now refer to as genre. Right. And also, I think the fact that it started this anthology formula is like having a bunch of movies each week rather than, you know, the same characters being developed over time. So I think that was kind of a, a thing that was unique even for its time, but certainly is it's in its own category these days. Right. And I think what I've really come to the realization is that these anthology shows, starting with the twilight zone and, and you know, ending with some of the shows we're going to talk about tonight, black mirror for one, it gives the creators such a chance to, take chances that they're not locked into as you said a certain set of characters on a week-to-week -week basis well not to mention they can get actors that wouldn't normally be in series because they only have to commit to one episode yes and so you get the big stars and in fact the twilight zone as you're probably going to mention started the careers of a lot of different actors or at least you have a lot of articles out there that said 16 actors you didn't know were in the twilight zone <laughs> you know that kind of thing and that certainly happened with Black Mirror and others as well. So that's a fun aspect of anthology series as well. All right. Now, you mentioned the Jordan Peele reboot that's going to appear on CBS All Access beginning April 1st, 2019. But that's actually the third revival of the series. There was one in the 80s as well. But we're just going to talk about the original series. And it ran for five seasons Four of the five featured 30-minute stories, while season four went to a full hour before returning to the half-hour format in its fifth and final season. But, you know, you mentioned actors 
being able to come and go and you know without that full season commitment and so many actors got their start so many writers i won't say they got their start but a lot of famous writers had their works performed or adapted including ray bradbury who you know we know from i sing the body electric which was adapted for twilight zone ambrose bierce an occurrence at Owl Creek Bridge, which is something I used in English class many times with my ninth graders over the years. Earl J. Hamner, perhaps best known for the Waltons of all shows, had his works adapted for the Twilight Zone. But it's become such a part of our culture. I think we all have favorite episodes. I mean, is there a best episode of the Twilight Zone? (laughs) Well, I don't know. So I'm just going to talk about a few of my favorites. The pilot, where is everybody, finds a man alone, no memory of who he is or how he got to this point. And the one detail that we notice immediately is that he's wearing an Air Force uniform. So this whole idea of not knowing who you are, where you are, and having no one around you to help you is just so compelling and so frightening because we can put ourselves in that individual's place. And that's the quintessential Twilight Zone episode. If you were to describe what most episodes were like, it would be you just have somebody stuck in a situation that they're not sure what's going on. Right. Now, another favorite of mine comes from season two, episode six. And again, it's something that I used when I was teaching the eye of the beholder, which finds a woman recovering in the hospital from facial reconstruction surgeries. So so we see her most of the time with her face bandaged. And, you know, there's, you know, this discussions going on about removing the bandages. Is she ready? And I'm not going to reveal the ending, (laughs) but it, it is somewhat of a shock and just so twilight zone. Now, Look, obviously, anybody that's listened to our podcast for any amount of time knows we're into time travel, interdimensional travel, whatever. So season two, episode 18, The Odyssey of Flight 33, where there's a break in the time barrier and this commercial airliner gets first sent back to a prehistoric age and then finally lands in new york city in 1939 yeah world's fair right (laughs) yeah yeah which which then leads me into arguably one of my favorite uh and and this is back from season one again the last flight and and i know critically it's not one of the most highly thought of episodes but i just love it you got an airliner theme going on (laughs) yeah well here it's lieutenant William Terrence Decker of the 56th Squadron Royal Flying Corps lands his Newport biplane on an American air base in France after he flies through this cloud. And, of course, the problem is he thinks it's 1917. It's actually 1959. (laughs) Different war. (laughs) Different war, different plane, and... Again, just that disorientation, and you know, not unlike Carmen deals with in Always a Witch. So if you haven't seen the original Twilight Zone, which I find incomprehensible. <laughs> well, it's interesting you picked some of these episodes because these are not necessarily the classic ones that people would pick, like the Burgess Meredith one where he's on a pile of books and breaks his glasses or... The one with William Shatner, where he sees the creature on the wing of an airplane. People always pick those ones. I like the ones you pick, too. Cool. That's good. All right. So what's your first one, Mike? 
Well, it's interesting that you picked that one because obviously you have to lay the foundation, but that obviously went hand in hand with other contemporary shows such as Alfred Hitchcock Presents and The Outer Limits. But I'm actually going to bring up The Outer Limits, but the reboot, which I guess you're familiar with. Did you ever see the one that took place in the uh, late 90s? I did not, no. Yeah, that's actually one that I started to dig back into once we started talking a lot about Canadian television because the second version of The Outer Limits did take place as a Canadian-American collaboration. And so a lot of the actors that we're familiar with did little episodes of The Outer Limits. But I think The Outer Limits reboot is an instance where the second iteration actually lasted longer than the original and also was inspired in the same way that the original Outer Limits was perhaps by Twilight Zone because, you know, Tales from the Crypt was very popular in the 90s and things were coming back in that way. And and one of the other shows that I'm going to be talking about, Amazing Stories, was, you know, causing an anthology series surge. So whereas the original Outer Limits went from 1963 to 1965, the second version of The Outer Limits went from 1995 to 2002. Don't necessarily get your hopes up, Jordan Peele. <laughs> it might not happen for you, but but this uh, Canadian-American collaboration aired on Showtime initially and then on Sci-Fi and Syndication just the same way that Stargate SG-1 did, if you remember that, Dave. Oh, yeah. Where they started out on Showtime. And in fact, Sci-Fi aired season seven of The Outer Limits on its own, which meant that Sadly, it had no more nudity or swearing like like the first six seasons did. But the original series definitely did have some truly classic sci-fi tales, some written by the likes of Harlan Ellison. You talked about some of the writers on Twilight Zone, and there certainly was that for the 60s version of The Outer Limits. But the reboot maybe for some people bordered on cheesy at times. It did, like I say, launch the careers of many of our favorite Vancouver actors, And episodes often had twist endings involving aliens, but it covered everything from time travel to genetic modification and often had some kind of satirical, you know, bent where it was trying to criticize something in our society the same way Black Mirror does these days. So one of my favorites that came from the reboot, uh, since you mentioned some of your favorites from Twilight Zone, I'm going to mention The Light Brigade which was about a human spaceship which was on its way to an alien homeworld during wartime. And it was preparing to unleash the ultimate weapon to get rid of the alien menace. And this one starred Robert Patrick of Terminator fame and other many other sci-fi properties. He was Major John Stokes. And it also featured one Will Wheaton as, guess what? A cadet. No. <laughs> same, same as in Star Trek. And people who remember Graham Greene from Defiance, he was also this one in this one as a weapons specialist. And the episode turns out the aliens trick the crew with their spy, which is Major Stokes himself, and they end up blowing up Earth instead without realizing it. So a great episode of that show. You know, we saw William B. Davis was in The Outer Limits and, you know, all kinds of different people who who we would recognize from sci-fi shows that filmed in vancouver so that's my pick all right cool well i'm gonna move into the horror arena for a bit with tales from the dark side which had four seasons from 1983 to 1988 encompassing 89 episodes and mike what i didn't realize until i started doing my research is that it was created by george a romero who we know from night of the living dead dawn of the dead creep show 
all kinds of zombie related movies. Yeah, you have this uh, as a very similar iteration to Tales from the Crypt, which I just mentioned. So seems to be somewhat in that vein as well. So yeah, anthology shows can range from the horror to the sci-fi and to the fantasy and beyond. So uh, it's nice that you can play with just about any of the geek genres, if you will. (laughs) Yeah, and while Tales certainly featured more of a horror slant, sci-fi, fantasy, and black comedy also made appearances throughout the four seasons. But we've mentioned authors whose works were adapted. Well, here, Stephen King. Oh, wow. Frederick Pohl, who we know more in the sci-fi arena. Harlan Ellison, who you mentioned. John Cheever, of all people. And Frederick Brown. Mentioning Frederick Brown, it's certainly understood that we're going to have unexpected twist endings which for tales was more often the norm rather than the exception and and certainly suited authors like frederick brown and harlan ellison but not to be unnoticed in the age of the reboot joe hill roberto orsi and alex kurtzman began plans in 2013 to give fans growing in the internet age a chance to connect with tales but Eventually, they were scrapped when they have failed to garner the serious interest of a network. But, you know, given the popularity of anthology shows, uh, it wouldn't surprise me if we see Tales from the Dark Side reappear in some form. And, geez, with, with those three guys associated with it, if they're still interested, it might really be something. Yeah, that's the Fringe team, right? Yes. Now, one of my favorites from season one is the Harlan Ellison story, Gin No Chaser, and that is D-J-I-N-N, which follows a couple as they experience the classic genie tale after they acquire a lamp that holds a genie, played by NBA Hall of Famer Kareem (laughs) Abdul-Jabbar. Oh, God. Um, And this is before Shaq plays. What was the genie he played? I don't know. Oh, right. Well, also, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar was in Airplane, so he he did have a little bit of an acting career. (laughs) Right. But... The cool thing about this story is that it's told by a mental patient to his psychiatrist, which adds a level of horror to what seems to simply be a fantasy. Then, of course, there's the season two Monsters in My Room, starring 10-year-old Seth Green. Oh, wow. Oh, that reminds me that The Outer Limits had a young Jessica Harmon from The Hundred, (laughs) probably around the same age as Seth. Okay, and then finally, a story, and again, this seems to be a recurring theme, a story that I used with my ninth graders many years ago, The Jesus Stacks by Frederick Brown, in which a young girl is gifted a dollhouse that's been abandoned by its previous owners, but she soon discovers the eerie connection between the doll family and her own family. Oh, very cool. Yeah. So, uh, Tales from the Dark Side. Yeah, I had forgotten about that one. I'm glad you brought that one up. And in fact, we're going to keep it in the vault for a little bit as we talk about one of my favorites from my childhood. But first, we're going to take a quick break, and then we'll be right back to talk about more of our favorite anthology series. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Well, 
But yeah, we seem to be digging into a certain era here because I definitely want to mention one of my favorites. Right around the time I was going from middle school to high school, Steven Spielberg produced Amazing Stories. And it was my favorite show. Waited every Sunday for that show to come on and just was wonderful. It didn't last very long. It ran from 1985 to 1987. But during that time, it was nominated for 12 Emmys and won five. It had episodes directed by Burt Reynolds, Martin Scorsese, Clint Eastwood, and Timothy Hutton. And uh, it was actually got its name, Amazing Stories, from the first science fiction magazine back in 1926, which was also called Amazing Stories. So it's very Spielberg-like in its sense of nostalgia and hope. This is not dark science fiction. It had much more, you know, uplifting, especially the episode I'm about to mention. But it did have, you know, some dark horror stories as well. And in fact, I read in my research that the 1987 film Batteries Not Included, in which a small group of sentient spaceships save an apartment block in the city from being torn down in favor of commercial development, that started out as an Amazing Stories script. So Spielberg definitely had his full hand in this. He was not an absentee executive producer for this one. He gets writing credit for a lot of the first few episodes of season one. But the most memorable one for me was The Mission. Oh, my God. Do you remember Uh, that one? Oh, my God. What a great piece of television. Oh. And the thing is, the critical reception was a little bit up and down for that one because it was so dramatic, but then had a twist ending that I think was geared for young people watchers like me rather than adult viewers because it involved cartoons kind of a roger rabbit ending but it was the story of a world war ii bomber that featured kevin costner Kiefer sutherland casey samasco and anthony lapaglia in a small role but casey samasco played a bull turret gunner who gets trapped inside the gun compartment when the plane is on its final mission And this guy is the team's lucky charm. He's kept them alive. They've gotten through so many battles here. They're on their final run. They get all shot up and now he's trapped down there and they have to land the plane or they'll all die. But the problem is the landing gear doesn't work. (laughs) So if they land, it's going to be a crash landing and that ball turret compartment is going to be crushed with him inside there. And, um, you know, Spielberg directed that one. He also had the score provided by John Williams. And like I said, let's just say the plane lands with some artistry from the the gunner who happens to also be a cartoonist. And he's on his way to a job at Disney, I think, or something yeah, like that. Yeah. I mean, it's just really, it's just a wonderful episode if you haven't seen it. Yeah, it's definitely a twist ending that none of us could have expected, that's for sure. But amazing stories. I'm hoping it will show up on some streaming service at some point. I haven't been able to find it. If anyone knows if it's out there, please let me know on social media or, or send an email to sci-fi fidelity at gmail.com. Cause I would love to relive some of that. So, all right. Well, Mike, my final anthology show is something that's currently available and that's electric dreams, which has, it appeared in late 2017 in the UK and then early 2018 in the U S And these are 10 standalone episodes, each based on a Philip K. Dick short story. Obviously, we know Philip K. Dick 
from Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep, which was made into the 1982 classic Blade Runner. And I think they might have made a new one. Actually, I thought the, <laughs> I thought the reboot was pretty good. I, I, I enjoyed it a lot. The 1962 alternate history, The Man in the High Castle, currently being interpreted on Amazon Video, which is a, a wonderful novel, which I read many years ago and, and reread it maybe about two years ago, I guess after season one. Yeah, it's headed for its final season, everyone. Right. Uh, 1956, The Minority Report, which became a 2002 Steven Spielberg film, and I believe a short-lived series as well. Right. Not good, but yes. <laughs> <laughs> right. But, you know, as I said, 10 standalone episodes. Episode one, The Hoodmaker, sort of sets the tone for the series. You think so? Uh, see, I don't, not in a good way, I thought. I, well, I actually got thrown off by that episode. <laughs> see, I, I like it in, I don't know. It, it, it's so disturbing in, in so many ways. But it's set in a dystopic future, which obviously is nothing new for genre fans small segment of the population possess telepathic abilities and the story explores not only the prejudice these individuals encounter but also the societal benefits that could be enjoyed now of course the invasion of privacy is perhaps the primary concern and the hood maker is this individual who is designed and marketed sort of on the underground circuit telepathy proof hoods that start getting distributed out among the mainstream but you know other stories in the series explore the technology revolution evolution devolution if you will (laughs) groups that choose to avoid tech the omnipresence of advertising both subliminal and overt and its effect on the populace there's just something there for everybody i'm surprised you didn't like the hood maker well i liked it it's just that I thought they were all going to be like that. And I was oh, like, okay. this is going to take some uh, endurance to get through some of this kind of dark stuff. But yeah, some of them are quite different from that. And uh, But this one was the most Philip K. Dick-like, I think. Yeah, yeah, I agree. The series is produced by Ronald D. Moore from Battlestar Galactica and Outlander. Brian Cranston from Breaking Bad features writers that include Ronald D. Moore, executive producer Michael Dinner. Matthew Graham, who was the co-creator of Life on Mars. And then, you know, we've mentioned actors in these anthology series, Anna Paquin from True Blood, Tuppence Middleton from Jupiter Rising, Steve Buscemi. If I have to tell you who Steve Buscemi is, then you got a <laughs> lot got, of homework to do. That's right. Uh, Terrence Howard, who's one of the stars of Empire, Greg Kinnear. Again, you should know who Greg Kinnear is. Somebody that has meaning for, for the two of us, Mireille Enos from The Killing, and also World War Z with Brad Pitt. She was wonderful in that. I, I surprisingly love that movie. And she was in Electric Dreams. Yes. I, I must have missed her appearance. Yep. Uh, Mara Tierney from The Affair. And then again, Ruth Bradley from Humans and Primeval. So, yeah, she was on this podcast. Right. And, you know, the great thing, again, as we've said about anthology series, you just jump in, watch episode four first, if you'd like. Exactly. And if you don't like that one, just watch another one. Doesn't matter. In fact, I think that's definitely true of our final choice. Uh, you got to go with Black Mirror, because the thing is, in the same way that many used to say, it's like Twilight Zone, but with whatever, you know, now, every time an anthology show comes out, people say, 
oh yeah, it's kind of Black Mirror-esque. You know, we, we talked about Dimension 4. We didn't talk about Dimension 404, but we interviewed the showrunner for Dimension 404. That's kind of Black Mirror-like, you know? And one of my family's favorite shows, which isn't even genre, but it's got kind of a murder mystery style to it, Inside Number 9 kind of reminds me of Black Mirror in a lot of ways. So it usually refers to warnings about our reliance on technology because that was the main theme of Black Mirror. And so I think a lot of shows have tried to go for that as well, including Dimension 404. But everyone knows Black Mirror started in the UK. Charlie Brooker brought it to UK's the UK's Channel 4 in 2011. Season 2 then came out two years later because that's how the Brits do it. And then each season only contained three one-hour episodes, kind of like Sherlock. And you had to wait quite a while for the next installment. But then Netflix took over production for seasons three and four, and those contained a much more American palette <laughs> number of episodes, six in each of those. And they were actually produced at the same time. So they just kind of filmed all 12 of them and then doled them out over a couple of years. But although season three had San Junipero and season four had USS Callister, you could argue that that British version at the beginning was maybe a little bit better, at least at that thematic mission of getting the warnings against technology. And would you agree with that assessment or not? Um, I have. And, I, you know, I know from the, your notes, some of the episodes you're going to talk about, and I definitely agree with that. And, and this is a series that I still have not seen every episode but I've probably seen, oh, eight or nine total. And Now, have you seen Bandersnatch, which is the most recent episode? I have not. And I've heard mixed reviews yes. and assessments <laughs> of it. And I'm not sure I'm willing to devote. I mean, you got to devote 90 minutes just for the first run through. <laughs> That's right. Exactly. It's definitely an innovative formula. A lot of people... We're talking about this standalone episode, Bandersnatch, had multiple endings. It kind of had a create-your-own-adventure formula to it where you had to bump around on Netflix in order to get at all the different hidden endings, which I kind of found served only to dilute the final story, even though it was a great episode up until the different endings you had to navigate. So very innovative, really cool story, and had some great elements to it, but ended up leaving me confused a little bit. And then my favorite episode from the beginning, the UK part of the series, has to be 50 Million Merits, in which a dystopian society has its citizens exercising each day to earn credits for everything they do, bombarding them with ads and reality programming while they're on their exercise bikes. And it starred a then much lesser known Daniel Kaluuya, who is, of course, now known for his role in Get Out. He's got that iconic image of him staring into the camera with tears rolling down his eyes. And of course the other lead character is none other than Downton Abbey's own lady, Sybil Crawley herself, Jessica Brown Findlay. So just like all the other anthology series, you know, you can find some hidden gems. Jody Whittaker was in the episode where they had that little grain video camera behind their ear. So if you want to see Jody Whittaker in an earlier role before Dr. Who, uh, you got to check out the earlier seasons of Black Mirror. And also remember, if you're watching season four, the final episode featured Letitia Wright before she was Shuri in Black Panther. I remember seeing that episode and going, hey, it's the girl from Humans that was pretending to be an android. And now, of course, everyone would say, oh, hey, it's Shuri. <laughs> right. <Yeah. laughs> 
But yeah, so some great anthology series. We only scratched the surface. There are tons that the listeners also mentioned on the Facebook group. So let's go ahead and hear from some of them. Faith chimed in with, are you afraid of the dark? She says it was one of my absolute favorites as a kid. And Daryl Darnell, who we don't often hear from on these discussion threads, but he chimed in with Twilight Zone, of course. And he's, of course, speaking of the fact that he just started a podcast on Golden Spiral Media called The Fifth Dimension Twilight Zone Podcast, discussing the new Jordan Peele Twilight Zone. Taltos came back at us with The Outer Limits, which is a good choice. And Joe Herbers had a couple of choices that he wanted to share with us on Facebook. He said, I seem to recall amazing stories from the 80s having some good episodes. And of course, we did discuss that one on this podcast. And Joe also brought up Tales from the Crypt on HBO decades ago. And of course, that got a brief mention here, but I'm glad Joe brought that up as one of his favorites. So we got a nice little cross section there from the listeners as well. And hopefully we talked about one of your favorite anthology series and let us know if we missed any. So, all right, Michael, what do we got up next? Well, next, Dave, we have a discussion of The Twilight Zone on CBS All Access, the one that Jordan Peele has rebooted, mentioned a couple times in this podcast. So this kind of leads into next week's topic in that sense. We're going to be discussing the first two episodes that aired on April 1st and also just a touch of episode three, which will have aired by then. But mostly we just want to give our general impressions of the reboot and a follow up to our discussion today of anthology series. But that's next week on the podcast. So that's going to be it for this episode of Sci-Fi Fidelity. Keep the discussion going on social media. You can follow Den of Geek on Twitter and Facebook at Den of Geek US. And we are at Sci-Fi Fidelity. And in the meantime, we'd love it if you could rate and review this podcast wherever you access it. And be sure to send us your suggestions for future topics on social media or in an email to sci-fi fidelity at gmail.com. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next week. Music.